Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In this week's episode, Greg and I discuss a new discovery about lactate. We're not really sure what it means, but it definitely seems like it could be important. After that, Greg shares some very impressive feats of strength, and then I share a research roundup segment where I talk about protein intake, sodium bicarbonate supplementation, dietary fiber, and more. After that, Greg gives an overview of the research pertaining to phototherapy, also known as laser therapy, and then he shares some tips for baking really good bread. Finally, Greg and I interview pro strongman James Deffenbaugh. Now, James is a a very, very accomplished strongman who tells us all about the sport, but he also talked to us about tips for getting started if you're interested in strongman, but you've never given it a shot. One quick correction before this episode begins. Last week, I mentioned that we had extracted and categorized clips from all of our previous Q&A episodes and put them up on strongerbyscience.com. Turns out, we extracted clips from all of our previous episodes, not just the Q&As. To check out this new resource, head over to strongerbyscience.com slash QA. As always, thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your host, Eric Trexler, and today I'm joined by a special temporary guest host, Greg Knuckles. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for joining me. Now, before we get into our prepared segments for today... You posted something to social media this week that is absolutely fascinating. Now, I don't think it warrants a research review segment because I don't understand it. But it's interesting enough to at least acknowledge it as kind of a news article. So uh, Nature, the prominent scientific journal, they had a little like press release article about a paper that they recently published. Um, so the the title of the kind of press release more lay press type article was histone lactylation links metabolism and gene regulation. So for anyone listening who doesn't have at least some level of background in genetics, the reason this is important is when your DNA is in the cell, uh, a lot of it is wrapped around these things called histones. They help organize your DNA. So it's not just flopping around all over the place, essentially. And the areas of your DNA that are wrapped tightly around histones are then inaccessible to be read. Uh, You know, so the proteins that go in and read the DNA to make the RNA strands, to make the proteins, have a really tough time getting to these segments of DNA that are wrapped around histones. And so in the field of epigenetics, histone modifications are important because uh, adding certain things to histones either makes the DNA uh, wrapped around those histones more or less accessible, which then affects gene expression, which then affects what proteins are made, which then affects function. So just to make sure we're all on the same page here, when we're talking about lactylation of histones, that's a histone modification, which ultimately can affect gene expression. So that's, that's what we're talking about, just to make sure everyone's on the same page here. Now, we already knew about a whole bunch of different types of modifications uh, that histone proteins can be subject to. So we know about histone phosphorylation, methylation, um, acetylation, citrullination, all sorts of different post-translational modifications. However, this new study that came along added another one to the mix that had not previously been characterized. So this is uh, 
a lactate-related post-translational histone modification. And so this is a pretty big deal. You know, a lot of the people who are probably reading this and intend to do something with it are in the field of oncology. Uh, But for us, when we think lactate, we're not thinking cancerous tumor metabolism. We're thinking, hey, I have a close personal relationship with lactate. Uh, I generate a whole bunch of that stuff when I exercise. So I think a lot of people in the fitness and exercise related um, area probably saw this headline and thought, what does that mean for me? And frankly, I don't know. What do you think, Greg? I also don't know. (laughs) Right. So that's why we're not doing a research review segment on it is because it's one of those things that you see the headline and you realize, hey, this could potentially be awfully meaningful. But in the meantime, we don't know what it might mean. It's possible that it might not be all that relevant whatsoever, but it certainly seems to be fairly important. So um, a somewhat related thing, um, subversity.com. It's run by Adele Musa. So on uh, Subversity, back in 2015, uh, he did a little write-up about a study that was pretty fascinating. I don't want to go too far into the details because we're getting really, really speculative uh, when it comes to this particular topic. But in any case, he he reviewed a study that there was a cell culture component and there was a rodent component. And uh, to wrap both of these studies into one singular kind of summary statement, what they did was they either exposed these, um, these cell cultures or gave the rodents uh, a lactate treatment with or without caffeine. And what they found was um, there were indicators that certain anabolic pathways were upregulated, um, either within those uh, cultured cells or in the rodents themselves. Uh, so an upregulation of some anabolic pathways, and they also saw increases in muscle mass and uh, myonuclei number, which we discussed uh about 900 episodes ago. I don't remember what episode that was, but we talked a lot about myonuclei and satellite cells. So it was a mechanistic paper saying, interesting, it looks like lactate with or without caffeine might be doing something that goes very far beyond metabolism and is more related to cell signaling. Um, So whether or not that's related at all to these uh, histone modifications, I have absolutely no idea, but science is really cool. There's some really smart people who over the next five or 10 years are going to spend a lot of time trying to get to the bottom of this this new type of lactate-related histone modification and what that might mean for physiology. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, um, I think just in general, a lot of, I think a lot of people have written lactate off to probably too great of a degree. Like I think lactate kind of had a pendulum where Way back in the day, everyone thought that, you know, it was what caused the burn and uh, then post-exercise soreness, and it was just this bad thing. And then I think, like, people started seeing it as more benign. And I think more recently, um, people used to think that it might, or, or at least, like, some type of metabolic stress or, like, s- something produced during metabolically stressful contractions uh, might improve muscle hypertrophy. Uh, and within the last like year or two, it seems like the tide has shifted and people are moving towards like solely tension based models. 
And I, I kind of feel like metabolic stress in general and lactate specifically have probably been written off a little bit too soon. Uh, part of the reason why is, you know, we're talking about, uh, you know, the effects of lactate on epigenetics now. But lactate has, lactate affects a lot of signaling pathways that haven't been like fully investigated to this point. And I think the research that people point to um, to, to kind of suggest that metabolic stress in general and lactate specifically may not influence hypertrophy isn't necessarily the best designed research because like lactate isn't the thing being randomized. So for example, you might have two different training programs, one of which causes greater lactate accumulation and you see similar hypertrophy after those two training programs. So you say, oh, we didn't see more hypertrophy with greater lactate accumulation, therefore lactate's not doing anything interesting. I don't think you can necessarily draw that conclusion because the thing that differed was, you know, the entire training program, uh, the intensity you were training at, how many reps you were doing. And one of the outcomes there is how much lactate is produced, but it's not like the two programs were identical except for the amount of lactate. Um, so anyway, it, it's not, that's not a great experimental model to isolate that single variable. And I just generally think lactate is more interesting than I think a lot of people give it credit for. Um, so yeah, I, I very much agree with Eric here. We can't necessarily do anything with this new finding right now, but I definitely, I definitely think it's an area of research to kind of keep your eye on moving forward. All right. So moving on to things that are a little bit more in our wheelhouse, let's talk about some feats of strength. Yeah, so to start with, uh, gonna go with one that I hope everyone's seen already. If you haven't, take a second, Google it right now. Uh, Julius Maddox, who I feel like has been in at least half of our feats of strength segments up to this point in the show, uh, recently hit what might be the craziest set of bench press I've ever seen. Uh, he benched 700 for a triple with a pause. Uh, and all of the reps looked quite clean. So, I mean, he currently has the record at somewhere around 740. Doing 700 for a triple, I definitely think we're going to see 750 plus the next time he competes. Um, I've heard he's been talking about benching 800 plus. Uh, and I mean, the way his training is going and the rate at which his strength is improving that seems incredibly plausible to me, which is crazy to even think about. Uh, so anyway, Julius Maddox is a beast. That's number one. Second feat of strength is Joseph Amendola, uh, USAPL lifter, competes in the 231 weight class or 105 kilo class, recently benched 580 pounds or 263 kilos. Uh it wasn't at a meet with international ref, so it's not an official IPF world record, but it is an unofficial world record, uh, beating the second place by 10.5 kilos or 23 pounds, which is a pretty huge increase for a bench record. And I'm pretty sure he did it in a full meet as well, which is super impressive. Um, looked him up on open powerlifting, and open powerlifting is saying he's only 25 years old. Uh, which, you know, suggests to me 
that he very well may become uh, only the second ever drug-free bencher to go 600 plus. Uh, Rock Lewis did that back in 2006 uh, in a federation with probably not quite as high of testing standards as USAPL or IPF affiliates for what it's worth. Also for what it's worth, I was uh, about 30 feet away from Rock Lewis when he hit that 600 bench. It was awesome. Um, One of probably the most impressive things I ever saw really early in my strength career Uh, And it looks like someone is getting back to those numbers now uh, under probably more rigorously tested conditions. Um, So anyway, 580 at 231, Joseph Amendola, super, super awesome. Uh, Moving on. So I may mispronounce this name, but Max Shethar or Shether, uh, 17-year-old kid competing in the 308 weight class or 140 kilo class, deadlifted 722 pounds, uh, which is ridiculous. Um, So previously, the heaviest deadlift for anyone 17 or under was 699.8, which is something that makes more sense in kilos. But anyway, uh, he beat that by 10 kilos or 22 pounds. Heaviest deadlift ever performed by someone that age. So that's ridiculous. Uh, They didn't make 17-year-olds like that back in my day. Um, Two more really quick. Yuri Belkin had a ho-hum performance by his standards at Big Dogs recently. Uh, He only went four for nine and still broke his own world record in the 110 kilo class or 242 class. Uh, he totaled uh, 1,070 kilos, which is 2,359 pounds. The news I heard out of that meet is that he injured himself on his first attempt squat because his rack height was too high. So he just like strained something trying to get the bar unracked uh, and trying to get set up for his first attempt squat. So he basically did an entire meet injured, only went four for nine, uh, still broke his own world record. So that's wild. Uh, Just a day in the life of Yuri Belkin, I guess. And then uh, finally, (laughs) probably the most controversial inclusion on this list, uh, but still impressive in its own right, is Dave Hoff uh, broke the 3,100-pound barrier and 1,400-kilo barrier in the same meet recently in Multiply Untested Powerlifting. The reason I say this might be controversial is... uh, (laughs) Really, since the WPO collapsed initially, uh, I think it's fair to say that the judging standard in multiply powerlifting has been pretty dissimilar to every other branch of powerlifting. So do with that what you will. I used to get upset about it, as did like everyone back in 2011, 2012. The way I see it these days is... You know, the folks who compete in multiply know what the rules are there, know how the judging is. That's how they compete. As long as it's called the same for everyone, I don't care if, you know, the way lifts are called is different for multiply versus raw. I don't compete multiply. I don't have a horse in the race. Uh, You know, as long as he's getting the same calls everyone else does, it's fine. Um, That's 
a ridiculous barrier to break. I mean, 3,100 pounds across three lifts. That was a 1,200-plus squat. After squatting 1,200-plus, benching 1,000-plus in multiply, and then I think rounding out the day with an 875 deadlift, which is, I mean, equipment doesn't help deadlift nearly as much as squat and bench. So, I mean, that's super impressive for anyone. Um, So, anyway, if you hate multiply lifting, you know, don't worry about it. If you love multiply lifting, you're probably super stoked about this barrier falling. Um, it, I mean, as someone who came up in the sport when multiply was really the biggest game in town, I still think it's cool. I still have a bit of a soft spot in my heart for it. Um, and I mean, Hoff is really in a league of his own right now. So uh, props to him. It's nice to hear how um, age has brought you so much wisdom and calm calmness when it comes to... Uh powerlifting judging so julius maddox benched 700 for three and i saw the video it didn't look like a particularly difficult three which is insane yeah i mean he he just broke 700 not that long ago um i could i could have my timeline wrong but i want to say he got to either like high sixes or low sevens kind of on his own and then hit up josh bryant who is a legendary powerlifting coach and specifically has coached a lot of very successful bench pressers. And that has just been a really good relationship. Um, so, so I think that partially explains the, you know, massive progress we've seen from him recently, but like Jesus Christ, dude, the 700 or the 750 barrier hasn't fallen yet. And it looks, it's already looking entirely plausible that 800 is going to happen. Uh, when, you know, it wasn't that long ago that the list of people who had benched 700 was two people. Uh, like when I got into the sport, uh, Scott Mendelson had recently become the second person ever to bench 700. And now someone is like legitimately knocking on the door of the high sevens. Like, it's crazy. Absolutely crazy. All right, so next segment we've got here is a research roundup. Um, so I took a look at some of the studies the last couple months, uh, saw some interesting ones that caught my eye. There's no particular theme with this research roundup. It's just kind of a, a mixed bag of things that caught my eye and caught my attention and might be uh, somewhat useful. So the first one, um, there was a study that came out, the effects of a novel bicarbonate loading protocol on serum bicarbonate concentration, a randomized controlled trial. Basically, when you when you talk about sodium bicarbonate uh, supplementation, there are some studies showing some prom- uh, promising results, but the one thing, the one caveat that you always have to consider with sodium bicarbonate is a pretty realistic likelihood of gastrointestinal symptoms. There, there's a lot of people who, when they take an ergogenic dose of sodium bicarbonate, um, it just completely disagrees with their stomach, and the results are not not good. Definitely not pleasant. So the, it's always been one of those things where theoretically, for a lot of uh, athletes and lifters, there are circumstances where sodium bicarbonate uh, supplementation would make sense, but a lot of people decide not to because why risk it when it comes to the high likelihood of GI symptoms? Now, what this study was doing was looking at uh, whether or not we could tweak the dosing protocol to get the same um, levels of, of blood bicarbonate, but while avoiding 
those unfavorable GI symptoms. So what they did was um, they had a placebo group that got no no sodium bicarbonate whatsoever. They got uh, they, they had a group that had a pretty typical um, sodium bicarbonate acute dose. It was 300 milligrams per kilogram taken a single dose uh, one and a half hours before the blood measurement. The other group, they kind of did an incremental uh, dosing strategy. So 19 and a half hours before the blood test, they gave them 110 milligrams per kilogram. 11 and a half hours before the test, they had 130 milligrams per kilogram. Four and a half hours uh, before, they had 160. And then one and a half hours before, they had 200. So uh, obviously, none of those doses were as high as the comparison group, which just got a flat 300 dose one and a half hours before that blood test. Now, uh, what they found was in the more typical dosing protocol, two of the seven participants reported severe GI symptoms, which basically mean they were like an eight or a nine out of 10 on on some kind of subjective uh, severity scale. Uh, But none of the patients in this modified uh, incremental dosing protocol, none of those participants reported any severe GI distress, and they were able to achieve I think even slightly higher levels of of blood bicarbonate compared to the more typical dosing strategy. So, you know, the, the thing was with this study, they didn't look at uh, performance outcomes or anything like that. It was just a straightforward, can we get this into the blood without upsetting your stomach? And the results of this particular study would indicate yes. Obviously, it's a very small sample. It's the type of thing you'd like to replicate. Uh, crossover design is perfect for this. That's exactly what you want so that you have people comparing symptoms within the same person. You know, this one hurt my stomach, this one didn't. That's the perfect uh, way to look at it. The, the big thing there with those types of studies, if you don't do a crossover design and you just like take a group of people and give them one treatment and take a totally different group of people and give them the other uh, uh, dosing protocol, you, you have to try to make sure or or basically hope that neither neither group is going to be different than the other in terms of how likely they are to be really complainy about their GI symptoms. So crossover trial is perfect for that. Um, so it is a small sample, but but that's one of the really nice features of this particular design. So hopefully people will come by and try to replicate that not only when it comes to uh, the symptoms, but actually look at some performance outcomes. And one thing worth noting as well, um, just because everyone when they see a small sample that's like the first thing they jump on like small sample you can't take anything reliable away from this research one thing to note is that small samples for crossover research like with within group designs are actually quite powerful so you don't generally need that many subjects to reliably detect whatever you're looking for so like small samples for between group research that can be super problematic oftentimes research comes out underpowered but for a crossover design like the one they used in this study a small sample is probably perfectly appropriate and having a huge number of people in the study if anything would just be wasting resources definitely okay uh study number two i'm not going to spend a lot of time on it because it's one of those things that is uh super obvious but it's always a nice study to have in your back pocket when somebody's giving you a hard time and you're like, dude, listen, like this is just how it is. So um, 
we've talked, I believe this one was by Grant Tinsley and company. We've talked about some of Grant's research before as it pertains to uh, time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting. So this one uh, is called a purported detoxification supplement. Does not improve body composition, waist circumference, blood, blood markers, or gastrointestinal symptoms in healthy adult females. So um, they basically had a supplement. It was a 1,350 milligram serving with a proprietary blend. Uh, that blend contained papaya leaf, uh, slippery elm bark, peppermint leaf, and a whole bunch of other leaves and roots and seeds and all that stuff. Now, the good news is their study found no harmful effects of supplementation. No, uh, you know, nothing changed whatsoever, but at least nothing got catastrophically bad. So that's that's a good thing. But uh, basically, they, they took this whole host of measurements. The, uh, the supplement was indeed safe. It didn't cause any um, horrible outcomes, but it just did absolutely nothing whatsoever. So it seems like certain times of the years, these, t- these detox supplements get really big. Usually it's when people who are typically, you know, not that into fitness kind of general population folks start dipping their toes into fitness and thinking like, okay, new year, let's try to tighten things up and see what we can do. That's when I feel like you see a lot of these supplements make a big push and you you start to hear a lot more people talking about them on social media and stuff. So this is something that I think a lot of people can improve on in the fitness space is, you know, you're into fitness. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast, you're pretty into it, right? And there's going to be people in your life, uh, either in person or on social media that you are in contact with who at some point aren't into fitness and they're going to kind of dip their toes in and try some things. Um, it's always good to set a good example for those folks and to make sure that you're not pushing people away from, from trying to get into cool things. So if you see somebody who's like just kind of getting into fitness and they're like, oh, I'm, I just got this cool new detox supplement. What you shouldn't do is put them publicly on blast. What you shouldn't do is uh, make them feel really stupid for doing it. Just hop in the comments. You fucking dumbass. Right. I can't believe you. Yeah. You've been in the gym for two months and you don't know everything I know already. How fucking dare you? Exactly. And so like it's we're recording this in November. Come December and January, there's going to be some new folks who aren't that into fitness, who don't listen to fitness podcasts and read fitness literature and some of them are going to reach for some of these uh, detox supplements be cool but you know this is nice evidence that you can show them say like hey this is like very accessible very applied research people have looked into these kind of products they don't seem to do much positive at all um but you know don't don't try to make people feel really stupid because you it just might work and people are going to be like hey i tried to participate in fitness i had a horrible time and everybody was mean to me and so now i'm just going to not do it anymore. Um, same thing goes with your gym etiquette. You know, when this time of year comes around, be nice to people, be cool. Uh, but yeah, so detox supplements, I, they're just not doing much and I'm going to leave it at that. On the topic of detox. Uh, so one of, I think the best strategies you can use if someone's like really into detox stuff is just ask them like, Oh, cool. It, this is supposed to detox you. What specific toxins is it ridding you of? Um, and, you know, don't ask that in like a super judgmental way, but oftentimes that's enough to just get the person thinking like, oh, I don't actually know specifically what this is supposed to do. 
the person or website that sold it to me seems to have left, you know, pretty big gaps in my knowledge. Um, so, I mean, that, that can be an effective way, especially if you don't ask it in like a gotcha type way, uh, which I think a lot of people do ask that in a very gotcha type way. That's exactly what I was going to say is like that question can be so constructive and so counterproductive at the same time, purely based on how you ask it. Yes. Uh, but in the realm of accessible supplements that do actually have detox benefits. Uh, so the algae, I don't know if it's pronounced spirulina or spirulina, um, but it's actually been shown to pretty reliably chelate heavy metals. Um, so <laughs> ironically, um, it's not incredibly uncommon for nutritional supplements to have higher levels of heavy metals than would be advisable. Um, just because like they're produced in sketchy factories overseas sometimes. Um, and so, I mean, like heavy metal poisoning is not a super common thing in developed economies, but it is something that can theoretically happen. Uh, that is something that can have a toxic effect. And spirulina has actually been shown to deal with those specific toxins. Um, so, so that's a thing. Uh, furthermore, it has some other benefits as well. Uh, at least one study, I think maybe in soccer players, showed that it could increase lower body power by a little bit. Um, and it also helps with rhinitis symptoms or uh, stuffy runny nose. So, um, you know, if, if there is someone in your life who is just really sold on the idea of detoxing um, and like, you know, you can't get them off of it. They're just sold that like, I want to do a detox or I want to take something to detox me uh, as kind of like a harm mitigation tactic. You could just point them in the direction of spirulina. It's probably going to have neutral to positive effects for most people. Um, and it does actually, you know, it, it can actually detox specific things if someone just happens to have high levels of heavy metals in their body. Well, Greg, I got bad news. That proprietary blend, I don't think it had that in it. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay. A couple studies came out recently on uh, protein intake, specifically looking at protein intake intended to maximize uh, the anabolic response to resistance training. So the first one I want to look at is called, this is a long title, Protein Intake to Maximize Whole Body Anabolism During Post-Exercise Recovery in Resistance Trained Men with High Habitual Intakes is several fold greater than the current recommended dietary allowance. That's a lot of words for a title, Greg. Um, okay, so this was uh, pretty straightforward. Um, they, they did some whole body resistance training, and basically they, they did several different protein doses uh, to try to figure out how much is enough. And what they, uh, what they used for their analysis was something called um, biphasic linear regression. Basically, what they were looking for is, is there a break point, right? So you would think as you increase that protein dose, you get better and better and better and better results. 
but at a certain point that's likely to level off and essentially become a flat line where it's like, okay, you've maximized, you maximized it enough that it's fine. And so uh, what they found with their analysis was uh, the break point they found was right around two grams per kilogram per day of protein. And there have been other studies in the past, at least at least one or two other studies that have taken a similar approach with the analysis where they're like, we're basically looking for a break point here. Where does where do where do these benefits seem to really level off? And what's the the point where we can say, yeah, at this level, you've probably done what you're trying to do. And I believe uh, at least one of those other papers identified a break point that was at a very similar spot. It was like 1.8 or two, something around that ballpark. So I, I think uh, at least in the in with using this kind of research paradigm of kind of short-term studies looking at these uh, anabolic responses, it seems like there's uh, growing evidence that is helping us triangulate a general range of, of where protein is likely to kind of max out that benefit. You know, that's one way you can view it. I view this as just the insidious lobbying of big protein uh, trying to pad their wallets over time. Because as of just a handful of years ago, they were saying 1.8 grams per kilogram per day. And now they're saying 2.0. That's ludicrous. Uh, those are incredibly different numbers. Um, there's no way that you could explain that just by different populations and different studies making it into the sample. It's clear that, you know, in the past few years, Big protein has obviously ramped up its lobbying efforts to, you know, try to make about 10% more money off of protein powder sales. And I can't believe you are blind enough to actually fall for this trap that they're setting. So I know that you're not doing this on purpose because we simply do not work that hard, but you're going to be shocked to hear this next study. The next study is called, Should Competitive Bodybuilders Ingest More Protein Than Current Evidence-Based Recommendations? Now, Greg, you were upset about that increase from 1.8 to 2.0. So we're talking about a difference of 0.2. Well, in this paper, th this is a quote verbatim. In regard to maximizing muscle hypertrophy, it would seem prudent for bodybuilders to consume at least 2.2 grams per kilogram per Ooh. day. Mm. So we've literally already gone, we've doubled up the increase that you found to be so egregious, and now we're at 2.2 in this study. At this point, it's too obvious. Do they really think they can get away with this? No one's stopping them, so they're going to keep pushing. Now, Disgusting. They also said in the study there's some evidence indicating that a higher ingestion of protein, up around 3 grams per kilogram per day, may have some applications. Um you and I have a love-hate relationship with a gentleman named Dr. Eric Helms. Uh, he published a review a few years back saying that uh, around 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram per day of lean mass, so fat-free mass, not total body mass, um, might make sense particularly if you're a bodybuilder in a deficit. So if you're in a caloric deficit um, and retaining muscle is one of the most important parts of your day, and if you're a prepping bodybuilder, it is, um, there might be times when going above that range of 1.8 to 2.2 grams per day, th there might be some reasons to do that in, in some of those unique circumstances. But for most people that are not a prepping bodybuilder, 
most of the research is indicating if you're in the high one to low two grams per kilogram per day range, you're probably at a level that is essentially maximizing your anabolic benefit from training. Now, there are some studies like whenever I think of setting a protein intake, I always think, you know, what is the penalty of going over and what's the penalty of going under? Is it worse to overshoot or to undershoot? And when we're talking about somebody who's a strength or power athlete or somebody with, uh, you know, who really prioritizes their physique related goals, the cons of going over seem uh, much more palatable than the cons of undershooting your protein intake. So my general bias is to lean toward a higher intake and going a little bit over is of no meaningful consequence in most cases. Uh, going a little bit under is just leaving gains on the table. And who wants to leave gains on the table? We we work way too hard to get them. So, uh, you know, there are studies. Uh, Jose Antonio has done some of those studies with protein intake where I think they've gone over four grams per kilogram per day. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, I think 4.4 is the highest assigned. Yeah, I mean, if you want to go for 4.4, be my guest. That sounds horrible to me. That that does not sound like a fun way to eat. No. <laughs> I mean, oh man, protein is so filling. that That's got to feel terrible. Absolutely terrible. But e- even in those really extreme cases, like you don't need to be up there. But even if you do go up there, it doesn't seem to be particularly uh, devastating. I think settling in in that, you know, 1.6, 1.8, 2.2, somewhere in that range is probably where most people uh, are going to find themselves. So that's one perspective. Um, another perspective is I recently saw a Netflix documentary uh, that suggested that cows, in fact, have more muscle than humans and don't eat that much protein. Um, I don't know, just something to stew on. So would you suggest that body, the the real question is not how much protein per day should a bodybuilder eat, but how many kilograms of grass should they eat in a given day? Look, I'm not making claims. I'm just asking questions. And I don't know why you seem so hesitant to ask questions. That's a good point. It's a good point. We should be able to talk about this in the free marketplace of ideas. No, you're right. So there's, that's why people come to this podcast. It's fair and balanced. You're going to get both sides of the story and uh, people are free to make, make up their mind. Look, you, you have science and I have the uh, rhetorical move of, but cows though. And I honestly think that those are uh, equally compelling. Fair enough. Let's switch gears to something a little bit less controversial. Let's talk about fiber. So there was a study, uh, within the last month or two called fiber intake predicts weight loss and dietary adherence in adults consuming calorie restricted diets. So this was, uh, they were looking at the pounds lost study. So it was a, a a randomized trial looking at some different calorie restricted diets, um, intended to induce weight loss in adults, a pretty big study, 345 participants, they provided their dietary records at baseline in six months. And the, the weight loss, the average weight loss at that six-month time point for the full sample was seven, about 7.3 kilos. Um, so, that, you know, that's a nice chunk of weight to lose over a six-month period. Now, they put together a, 
a big old regression model to try to find all the predictors that related to weight loss in the sample. And obviously fiber was not the only one. Fiber was not, you know, driving the entire weight loss effect. But they did find that of all the things they put into this model, uh, which included energy density, fat, uh, age, adherence, their their weight when they started, um, changes from baseline and a bunch of different dietary factors, they did find that fiber intake was the biggest independent predictor of weight loss success. Um, They also found that the fiber was strongly associated with adherence to the macronutrient prescriptions that they were provided. Now, I am not of uh, of the opinion that fiber does anything remarkably magical, but I do think that fiber is an absolutely key component of a really solid weight loss diet. And I've mentioned this on on the show before. When I start a weight loss diet, the first thing I do is I ramp up my intake of fibrous vegetables. My cauliflower intake, broccoli, spinach, it it just goes through the roof. Um, I start eating more berries. um, But I mean, solid fiber intake from really fibrous fruits and vegetables is in my opinion for most people going to set them up it you know it's not doing anything magical in the diet but i think it's a really nice first step to set people up for success in most free living conditions uh you start getting somebody onto a diet that has plenty of fruits and vegetables plenty of fiber their fullness goes up their satiety is taken care of um generally speaking it is a, a a filling uh, satiating and typically nutrient packed, really, really solid weight loss diet. And that's pretty much consistent with what they found in this particular study was that, you know, it's not like there was some, uh, you know, people treat these diet studies when they look at individual factors. Sometimes people see it as like, well, calories can't explain it, but fiber did it again. We have no idea how in this case, you know, it's really straightforward. It, It helps you, um, feel very full and satiated from your diet and it helps you stay on track with your adherence and generally speaking it's just a really solid way to diet when you're in the weight loss game now there's another study related to fiber that i'm not going to get too far into the details on because frankly i'm not going to pretend that i have a really really thorough understanding of the gut microbiome i think uh, the internet is full of people who do but I think the number of people who are eager to profess expertise about the, the gut microbiome is way larger than the people who possess expertise on the gut microbiome. So I think, uh, is it, can I give a spoiler? We're, we're going to have, uh, we're going to have Gabrielle Fundaro on the, uh, on the podcast, and she's going to tell us everything we want to know about, uh, about the gut microbiome. But for now, I can at least appreciate an interesting finding. So there was a, uh, it was kind of like a, a little summary of a study that got published. It was called the key to successful weight loss on a high fiber diet, maybe in gut microbiome prevotella abundance. Um, so there, there was this study where they, they classified people's gut microbiota into three groups and they call them enterotypes. And even from just a cursory kind of uh, a little bit of background reading. So they grouped them into these three enterotypes and apparently there's some controversy over how useful or I guess robust those groupings are. Um, th- there's still some controversy about whether or not it's a good idea to be grouping in this particular way. So that's frankly, looking at the, the gut microbiome stuff, I'm not sure if there's anything out there that isn't controversial among some experts in the area. 
it's it's like there there there's so much to be figured out and then as people settle upon different strategies for how they want to go about researching these topics then you have to form scientific consensus and people start arguing about what the consensus should be so this this is a newly forming area that uh, you know there's all sorts of controversy and disagreement and argument which is why I I just want to very briefly <laughs> kind of share what this study found um, but it was a secondary analysis from a six-week randomized controlled trial. And uh, it was really interesting because they, they basically, you know, they had high fiber and low fiber diets w within this dietary trial. And what they found was the subjects that were grouped into one particular enterotype lost way more weight on the high fiber diet than when they were on the more kind of low or normal fiber diet. Um, however, people of a different enterotype within the study essentially remained weight stable um, no matter which one they were on. So th this high fiber diet for one enterotype was really effective compared to the alternative diet, but for the other enterotype, essentially th they didn't really see big improvements with either diet. So um, the, the full in-depth results of that trial are much more nuanced. There's a third group in the mix that was like, an even more special type of enterotype. Uh, so, so you can really get into the weeds on that study, but it was a, a, a just kind of an interesting thing that jumped out to me that, you know, as we continue to figure out more about the gut microbiome, there's a lot of questions about what are the practical implications of that. There are a lot of questions about which direction causality is going with a lot of these studies. In this particular case, um, it would appear that uh, there, there was a measurable difference in terms of response to a high-fiber diet based on the individual's baseline uh, enterotype that they started the study with. Now, you could take that one further level in terms of complication and say, but what happens when they actually stick on this diet long-term and potentially have a shift in their enterotype? So, I mean, the gut microbiome stuff is generally just an absolute minefield of, of complications and disagreements. And uh, there's a lot of nuance involved. But in any case, it's something to keep an eye on is not just how high fiber diets affect the microbiome, but also how your uh, kind of baseline microbiome might affect your response to a high fiber diet. Now, the thing to keep in mind, though, I say this whenever we talk about some of these interesting findings, looking at particular nutrients, we're not talking about violations of, you know, calories in, calories out. This is not some kind of weird flaw in physics. The numbers always work, but usually in these types of studies, especially with free living individuals, what we'll find is that, you know, the, these different aspects of the diet could affect energy uptake from the diet. It could affect um, energy expenditure. It could affect simply adherence to the diet. Uh, so th there are a lot of different factors that could be involved. Um, but in any case, fiber, very, very cool. And uh, usually whenever someone says, hey, I'm going to try to lose some weight, one of the first things that come to mind is what's your fiber intake like? Are you getting a bunch of fibrous vegetables? If not, you probably ought to. Yeah, I, I feel like um, and I feel like much like lactate, people kind of sleep on the degree to which gut microbiota can affect things. Uh, so you were talking about fiber, um, man. So maybe like two or three years ago, 
there was a study published that really stuck in my mind where essentially what they did is they they had two groups of people. So the first group of people, they took stool samples to look at their gut microbiome, just see what they had down there, uh, and then had them try a whole bunch of different foods uh, and analyzed their glycemic response to it. So basically, what was your blood sugar response to various carbohydrate-containing foods? Um, and then they looked to see, like, based on your gut microbiome and what foods you had, like, the, the largest or, like, most surprising glycemic response to, which of, like, the different types of bacteria were predictive of having like a larger or smaller glycemic response to particular types of foods. And then in their second group, they essentially like validated what they found in the first group. So they used the first group to kind of like train an algorithm and then kind of like a priori, they got stool samples from the second group and said, okay, based on what we're seeing from your microbiome, from what, from what we saw in the first group in the study, we think these foods are going to give you a small glycemic response and these foods are going to give you a much larger glycemic response. And it turned out they were right. Um, and the algorithm worked really, really well. So, I mean, that's just kind of like how a validation study works 101. But the surprising thing about it was just how variable the high and low glycemic foods were person to person based on their different gut microbiomes. So the one that sticks out in my mind uh, from the press release for the study is they mentioned that for a couple people, their highest glycemic response was to tomatoes, which is generally not thought of as a super high glycemic food. Uh, and then for some of the people, foods that are typically thought of as being higher glycemic had you know much, much smaller glycemic responses than would be expected. Uh, so yeah, I, I think it's... I feel like how you led in with this was correct, Trex, which is that a lot of people think they know a lot about the gut microbiome, and then, you know, they follow that up with, like, huge sweeping statements, which just due to the variability we see, I feel like simply cannot be true. Um, but But I do think that I do think the evidence suggests that differences in gut microbiomes can play a pretty large role in determining how people are going to respond and going to feel after different diets. Um, but there's still a ton of details to work out. But it, I think it kind of makes me more more willing to just like believe people's uh, like subjective statements about their diets. So, you know, if if we know that one thing is typically good for most people and someone says, oh, I tried that, felt like shit, my energy was awful, you know, I, I'm going to be less likely to say, oh, like, you're full of shit and just didn't give it a chance and more likely to be like, oh, well, you know, that's not a typical response, but I buy it because people just have weird and super variable responses to nutrition. Definitely. And I, I'm stoked to talk to uh, to Gabrielle. I've got a whole bunch of questions about the gut microbiome. So listeners, stay tuned to that or stay tuned for that. Should be a good one. Now, Greg, we've been getting a lot of uh, a lot of feedback from listeners. I, probably every couple every couple weeks I get an email. 
you guys never talk about lasers. <laughs> so finally, uh, all those people that have been emailing me, everybody chill. Greg is going to tell us about lasers. Yeah. So uh, like Trek said, this is easily one of the most uh, common requests we get for the show. Uh, so let's talk about lasers. So um, there is what is what is called phototherapy, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's using light to do something therapeutic. Um, so typically it would either be infrared light or near infrared light. So basically long wavelength visible light. So things at the very far end of the red spectrum. So either infrared or near infrared. And they can do... So those wavelengths of... Uh, the electromagnetic spectrum can do several different things in the body, but uh, most relevant for exercise is they interact with the cytochrome complexes within the mitochondria and also with the hemoglobin and myoglobin, which are light sensitive to some degree. Um, and essentially what it does with the mitochondria is just kind of make it work more efficiently to speed up ATP synthesis. And with the hemoglobin and myoglobin, what it does is it shifts their redox, their redox status to make them uh, more likely to offload oxygen, which is what you want during exercise. You want, uh, within the muscle tissue, you want oxygen to be offloaded more efficiently at a given PO2 level. Um, and so, you know, kind of the things that you want happening metabolically within your muscle tissue during exercise, uh, phototherapy helps those things along. Uh, and so I, I was aware of this concept, but I was under the impression that it was one of those things that, you know, maybe there was some cell research on, maybe there were a couple animal studies, but you know, maybe at most a couple human studies, but not all that much out there. Like that was my impression, but that was because I hadn't sought out the research in the area. And so I'm reviewing a paper for mass this month about phototherapy and its effects on exercise performance. And so, you know, that led me to fire up PubMed and see what else is out there. And I actually came across some pretty recent meta-analyses looking at the effects of uh, phototherapy on both exercise performance and recovery from exercise. So uh, in 2016, there was a meta-analysis from NAMPO and colleagues titled Low-Level Phototherapy to Improve Exercise Capacity and Muscle Performance, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. And so basically they just, you know, pulled out all of the studies that had looked at the effects of uh, pre-exercise or like between set phototherapy on exercise performance. Uh, not a huge body of literature, but way more than I thought there was. So there were 16 studies in the area. Uh, and so they looked at things like the degree to which it improved the number of reps people could do during dynamic resistance training. It did have a significant effect on that. Uh, improved, and I mean, this number probably doesn't mean anything due to heterogeneous protocols but a mean increase of about three and a half reps across you know, various training protocols. Uh, during isometric tests, they looked at uh, improvements in time to exhaustion. There was a significant increase there as well. They looked at its effects on blood lactate levels. It decreased 
the lactate response to exercise by a bit, uh, 0.34 millimoles per liter. Uh, and most surprisingly to me, it also increased peak torque by about 21 newton meters. Um, and just based on the known mechanisms on like mitochondrial efficiency, you would think, you know, maybe it can improve endurance, but I wouldn't necessarily think it would improve peak torque, but it does also seem to improve peak torque, which is uh, quite interesting. And so those are the effects on exercise performance. Um, a slightly older meta-analysis published in the Journal of Athletic Training by Borsa and colleagues uh, titled, Does Phototherapy Enhance Skeletal Muscle Contractile Function in Post-Exercise Recovery? A Systematic Review. Also looked at a lot of those same studies looking at performance, very, very similar uh, conclusions, but it also looked at studies uh, investigating various markers of exercise recovery. So, um, you know, mostly just like the standard markers of muscle damage that one would typically look at. So things like creatine kinase and whatnot. Um, but there have also been a couple studies where basically the design is you have uh, two groups train and one of the groups gets phototherapy either during exercise or post-exercise. The other group gets a sham treatment. And then you look and see how exercise performance looks without phototherapy 24 to 48 hours later. So basically looking at performance recovery. And so what they find in those studies is not only does phototherapy improve acute performance, but it also allows people to recover from that performance a little bit faster, both in terms of markers of muscle damage and uh, recovery of performance within the next 24 to 48 hours. Um, so that's cool. Uh, it, it kind of seems like, uh, you know, it like everything in the kitchen sink, like basically everything one would want out of some sort of intervention to improve exercise improves both performance and recovery. So um, that that may put uh, you know th that may stimulate your your spider senses as it were um, because you know things that especially things that improve recovery uh, and decrease some of those markers of inflammation may kind of be, one of those things where it's good in the short term, but not necessarily the long term. So, you know, we see that with antioxidant supplements, with NSAIDs, uh, with cold water immersion. Some of those things can decrease markers of muscle damage, maybe improve short term muscular recovery after training, but can inhibit uh, muscle growth and possibly strength gains longitudinally. So, you know, the question is, is phototherapy going to do that as well? And in fact, it actually seems to be less like cold water immersion and NSAIDs and more like creatine in that it improves performance and also may improve longitudinal training outcomes as well. So I think there's less research on this, but I did find a study uh, also by Baroni et al., uh, title of the study is Effects of Low-Level Laser Therapy on Muscle Adaptations to Knee Extensure Eccentric Training. Um, and so basically they had three groups train for eight weeks. Well, one was a control group. They didn't train. One group trained, just, you know, carried out a training protocol. The, other, the third group did the same training protocol, but also got 
phototherapy, laser therapy, uh, along with their training. And over those eight weeks, the group also getting laser therapy had uh, a significantly larger increase in muscle thickness for the muscles being trained, 15.4% versus 9.4%, a larger increase in isometric peak torque, and a larger increase in eccentric peak torque. So anyway, this all seems super, super cool. Uh, Helps you perform better, helps you recover better, and may help you get larger gains as well. So here's the catch. Uh, The catch is that I don't know how much faith we can have in commercial products um, purporting to deliver this to you. So (laughs) once I found this research, uh, I was like, holy shit, this all sounds awesome. Uh, What is it going to cost me to pick up like a really high quality unit? And so essentially, this is one of those things where there's consumer grade stuff and research grade stuff. Um, so I searched one of the units that had been used in one of these studies just to see, oh, if this sets me back a couple hundred bucks, I might make the splurge just to see if it does anything. Turned out it was like 20,000 bucks, uh, which to me, not worth it. Um, then I looked on Amazon to see if, you know, there was consumer grade stuff with good reviews and I did find stuff that at least purports to put out the same sorts of wavelengths used in the research at similar wattage to what's used in the research for like 100, 150 bucks. And so that makes me mad skeptical if there's like a 100-fold difference in price between the stuff they use in research and the stuff that's, you know, consumer available. Um... And so, like, there are several devices on Amazon that have good reviews, but the thing that makes me really skeptical about them is they tend to market themselves for, like, recovery from injury or alleviating pain, because that's one of the other, like, researched applications of phototherapy. And especially pain is super susceptible to the placebo effect. Um, So, like, essentially the more objective something is, the less susceptible to the placebo effect it is. The more subjective something is, the more susceptible it is. Uh, And so pain is essentially like the ultimate subjective outcome measure. And so a a lot of these products on Amazon have great reviews. People are like, oh, I use this. Like it's been helping my bum knee that's been bothering me for 20 years. But like, I can't know that that's not the placebo effect. Um, So essentially at this point, I am kind of sold that phototherapy seems to be pretty legit. Um, I am definitely going to want to see more longitudinal studies before I'm super confident that it does actually improve longitudinal like strength and hypertrophy outcomes. But it does like, like there's a pretty decent body of literature backing up its effects on improving acute performance and recovery at this point, which is great in its own right. I'm just not sure how much we can trust the units that are out there on the market that are actually affordable. So that's, as I see it, the drawback. But, um, you know, it's one of those things that if you're looking for, if you're looking for something that could potentially give you an edge, like if you're a super competitive powerlifter or bodybuilder and 
you know, you're already spending like 200 bucks a month on supplements anyways. It may not be the worst idea to, you know, make a splurge on one of those consumer products on Amazon, like 100, 150 bucks. Like that's kind of pricey, but it's not ridiculous. It may do good stuff for you, or, you know, maybe the products on Amazon are bogus, but the technology itself does seem quite legit. And it's something I'm pretty excited about. You know, when you were talking about it, I, I kept thinking about um, how readily kind of, I guess you would call them alternative recovery modalities are adopted at high level sport. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, you turned on the, the last cycle of, of Olympics and everybody's just covered with dots, right? Like, yeah, if you weren't cupping, you weren't trying was basically like, and you know, they, they do all the features like, oh, look at this cool thing all the athletes are doing now. I wonder if they're already doing this. And if not, this would be my front runner for the thing that during the next Olympics, they do a little like two minute special on. So I I think the original research on phototherapy is actually like kind of old. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how old, but I remember. So when I was, when I was like a sophomore in college or between sophomore and junior year, I interned at Mash Elite Performance and Travis was in in the process of starting a second facility at the time. And the second facility kind of partnered with a physical therapy clinic. Um, and so the guy that owned that physical therapy clinic, he was he was into, you know, doing the stuff that was super well supported and evidence-based. But then also, like, I think his clinic was was quite successful. And so he was also willing to, like, make the splurge on the stuff that was starting to have, like, you know, evidence developing but wasn't super well supported yet. And so I remember the first time I went to that facility and met him, he just wanted to show off some of his toys. And he had just gotten a unit to do laser therapy. And so that was... Oh, that was 2012, I guess. Um, so, I mean, it's it's not something that's super new. I mean, at least some people knew about it uh, at least seven years ago or so. So, I mean, I, I don't know. Maybe it's something that's already used a lot in high-performance settings. Um, but, yeah, I mean, to this point, the research is super promising, and if I had 20000 bucks to drop on a unit, I would be pretty confident that that would have a meaningful effect. I'm just not sure if I trust the $100 units, you know? Yeah, I definitely get that. Uh, just one other thing I'll note about the body of research that's out there, which makes me trust it a little bit more than I might otherwise. So one good sign for a healthy body of literature is that you don't just see all of the research coming from one research group. Um, that's, that's always a little bit sketchy. And so at this point, there seems to be three active research groups in this area. Um, you see a lot of papers with Lial Jr. as the lead author, fair amount of papers with Borsa as the lead author, and a fair amount of papers with Baroni as the lead author. Um, so, and, and it doesn't seem like there's like really much overlap with those research groups. They're doing similar stuff getting similar results, which does make me have more faith in it than I even would otherwise. Um, So anyway, yeah, I just find it uh, super interesting. And I mean, it's lasers. Lasers are cool. That's awesome. Yeah. So uh, 
you're going to have that in the December issue of Mass. You've you've got a new article on on this therapy, and uh, yes, sir. Within Mass, the authors we we have an internal peer review process that is infinitely more rigorous than any other peer review process that occurs. So I'm pretty I'm pretty excited to uh, to see what you put together there. I'll do my best. Okay, so I mentioned we get a lot of fan mail asking for laser content. That was actually not true. But one thing that is true <laughs> is we often get people asking for some more cooking-related content. So to play us out for this episode, uh, I understand, Greg, you've got uh, a little... Is it a cooking tip or a recipe? A uh, cooking tip. Cooking tip. All right, Greg, the floor is yours. Okay, so I have been getting really into bread baking recently. Um, kind of my introduction to cooking was almost exclusively stovetop and then grilling. I think I've gotten pretty good at both of those things. Uh, something that always intimidated me a lot was yeasted breads. Uh, so I don't have as much experience with bread baking, but that's something I have been experimenting with a lot recently. Uh, and one of the things that I want to get really, really good at is making really good sandwich bread. Uh, the reason for that is I eat a fair amount of sandwiches. Um, sandwiches are a pretty quick thing that one can grab if they're in a hurry, and I'm generally busy, so that's good. And they can be quite macro-friendly. Like most lunch meat is pretty lean, a lot of protein. Uh, and then additionally, my wife loves toast. Um, eats it with breakfast every day one of her favorite foods. And so generally sandwich bread also makes good toast bread. Uh, so, you know, I've tried to set off to get really, really good at making sandwich bread. And one of the issues I kept running into is I would bake these loaves. They would come out of the oven. They would be perfect. They would taste great. They would be soft, fluffy, uh, slightly moist, everything someone wants in sandwich bread. And then by the time we were halfway through the loaf, two or three days later, it was already going a little stale. Like the flavor was changing somewhat. It didn't have the nice spring anymore. Um, and I mean, that's, that is one of the drawbacks of making your own bread. Uh, one of the reasons that store-bought breads are so popular and so good is they tend to put a fair amount of preservatives in them to you know, let you use them over the span of two or three weeks while they still, you know, feel fresh, taste fresh-ish, maintain the texture you bought them with. Um, and unless you're just going to go for those preservatives, it's it's hard to get that with home-baked bread. So I recently came across a technique that, I don't know, maybe it's popular in baking circles, but I had never heard of it, and it purported to make loaves of soft breads, both softer right when they come out of the oven and also uh, to help them stay soft and supple and fresh tasting longer. And I hope I don't butcher this pronunciation too much, but the name of the technique is Tongshang, uh, I think is close enough. T-A-N-G-Z-H-O-N-G. -G. It's a Chinese technique. Um, and so essentially what it is, is you start with a water roux. So if you are familiar with French cooking at all, you know that a roux is typically just flour and butter that you cook out a little bit. Um, so a water roux 
is instead of going with a fat source like butter, uh, you go either with all water or mostly water. So, you know, it could be something like milk, which is about 90% water, give or take. Um, and so essentially, when flour is heated up to above 140 degrees Fahrenheit, which is something in Celsius, and at 50 degrees, I'm going to guess, 50, 60, whatever. Uh, but 140 degrees Fahrenheit, it will gel. Uh, it'll, like, the, the structure of it will change. It's going to absorb a shit ton of liquid. Like, the difference in the texture of your flour and water slash milk mixture uh, between, like, 120 degrees and 140 degrees is night and day. It essentially makes this thick paste, which just sucks up all of the water, and uh, that's your water roux. And so, essentially, you you take that, integrate it into a just otherwise generally straightforward sandwich bread recipe, and it comes out softer, fluffier, and uh, since we just finished our first Tangzhang loaf, uh, I can verify we kept it for about six days before we finished it, and it did stay uh, much fresher and with a much more pleasant texture the entire time. So this this does seem to be the way to do sandwich bread if you like baking your own sandwich bread, which I would recommend you do. It's fun. It's not all that hard. Uh, it's a pretty easy introduction to yeasted baking if that is something you're interested in trying. Um, so generally I tend to follow a process of when I first get into a new technique, I follow recipes. And then once I kind of understand the science behind what I'm doing and understand kind of what makes the recipe tick, then I start putting my own spin on it. So I'm not to that point yet. Uh, I just followed the Tangshang milk bread recipe from King Arthur Flour. So if you just Google that, the recipe I use should pop up. It was absolutely incredible. I would highly recommend it. Um, oh, so I mentioned science. The The thing that this technique is doing is, like I said, when you heat the, the flour and milk or water mixture up to 140 degrees, uh, it gels, the flour absorbs a shit ton of liquid. And so then when you put that into the bread, uh, as even like a relatively small percentage of the dough, you're going to have that gelled flour that's holding on to a lot of water and it like maintains that structure. So it just allows the loaf to one, have more moisture in it when it's done baking in the first place, which makes it a little bit softer when it comes out of the oven. And it does a really, really good job of holding on to that water for days at a time, which largely solves the problem of homemade bread going stale faster. So um, anyway, that's my baking tip. Uh, Google it. Again, it is T-A-N-G-Z-H-O-N-G. Um, super, super cool. And uh, yeah, if you bake some bread with this technique, send me a picture on Instagram, tag me in your story, whatever, uh, and have fun with it. And if you're interested in learning more about the science behind it, there is a YouTube series called What's Eating Dan, uh, starring a guy named Dan Souza. Um, that is where I found out about this technique originally. It's like a five-minute video, um, so you can just search that on YouTube. Really good video, good introduction to the technique. Uh, and I think that's about all I have to say about that.
Perfect. So, you know, some of our listeners are, are a lot like you, Greg. They like to um, put some time and effort into their cooking. They enjoy that. A lot of a lot of listeners are a lot like me. We prefer a slightly more parsimonious approach. So just so we don't leave them hanging, I, an alternative thing you could do, I moved into a different apartment, uh, I think about three or four months ago. And when I moved in, I didn't have any food, right? So I got um, some ultra processed white Wonder Bread. Um, And I'm still going with that same loaf. Um, It's been keeping very well, still very uh, fresh. Whatever preservatives they're putting in there is working. No reduction in quality. So um, I don't know if you're getting your bread the last four months, but mine's doing just fine. Generally, a loaf of bread's not going to make it four months. I'm doing fine. Believe me. (laughs) Okay, um, that wasn't true. Don't eat gross bread. That's going to make you ill. All right, so we've got an awesome interview for this week's episode. Uh, We sat down and had a chat with James Deffenbaugh. Now, James is a a pro strongman. He also is the owner of uh, a gym in Raleigh called Spider Strength, where Greg actually trains, if you've watched any of Greg's recent uh, training videos. Uh, so we talked to James, and James is a, like I said, he's a pro, really, really high-level, talented strongman. So what was cool about the interview was we talked about some of the high-level strongman stuff, but we also talked about how a total beginner would even start getting into strongman. So I would imagine a lot of our audience uh, has minimal exposure to strongman, maybe hasn't tried it themselves but is interested in it, but just doesn't know where to start. So it was a really nice interview. We kind of talked about both ends of that strongman spectrum, whether you're interested in the really high level competitors or, you know, you're interested in just giving it a shot yourself. So uh, James is a super cool guy, really fun to talk to. Got a really informative uh, interview after the music. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you in a week. All right, so joining us today is James Deffenball. James, how are you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Thank you for uh, for gracing our humble podcast with your presence. Yeah. Um, I would also like to uh, submit this interview as an interview for the temporary guest host position. Um, <laughs> I don't have a strong science background, but I have a strong, stronger background, which I think would be a good fit for the show. So we're open to just about any alternative. So uh, your background is totally sufficient. And I've got a pretty long backlog of submissions, but uh, I will put you to the top. All right. I appreciate it. So Trex is kind of angling for uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson to be the the permanent co-host. He hasn't returned too many of our emails yet. But, but Trex thinks that lead is starting to heat up. Uh, but, but if that falls through, I, I'm sure he'll, uh, he'll contact you. So the problem is Dwayne is surrounded by a lot of bad folks. And uh, <laughs> his, his management, his agents, are they don't know what they're doing. Um, I missed him the first time because he was on vacation. So we're, it's, things are moving along, trust me. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, so, so James, just... So, uh, just so the listeners know who they're listening to right now, um, t- tell us a little bit about your background. Um, you know, just 
what what do you do on a day-to-day basis um, and how you got into the sport of strongman. Uh, I've competed in strongman for about 13 years. Um, in that time, I started a, a tacky company. Uh, tacky is is uh, the adhesive substance used in your hands and forearms to help load atlas stones. Um, about three or four years ago, I started a gym called Spider Strength Gym, um, which is powerlifting, strongman, and weightlifting. Um, and I've also uh, promoted a few strongman competitions. Um, as far as like an a- academic background, I don't have um, much in the way of science-related academic background. Uh, you know, my, my day job has always been in IT. Uh, strongman is kind of a competitive outlet for me. I gotcha. Uh, and just for anyone listening, if you happen to be hearing the sound of my voice and James's voice, uh, and you are... I don't know, within like an hour drive of Raleigh, North Carolina, and you're interested in strength sports, you should at minimum check out Spider Strength Gym or preferably sign up, become a member. Uh, hands down, one of the best strength gyms that I've been to. Uh, it, just for some more background, uh, James is the man. He runs the gym that I train at, uh, and it's an awesome gym. So, James, what uh, what got you into lifting in the first place? Um, I've always liked to lift. Um, I lifted in high school. Um, I'd lift a little bit in college, but usually it didn't take. Um, like a friend of mine and I would, would go in. We'd, we'd decide, okay, we're going to commit. We're going to really do this. We're going to get big, get strong. Um, and then they'd show up once and then never show up again. I'd go like three or four more times and then kind of quit again. Um, the, the last time I started, I just did it on my own. Uh, I had trained on my own for like, you know, three or four months. Um, I didn't know to squat. I didn't know, you know, how to lift really. I just did what I could. Um, and then one of my coworkers uh, emailed us some picture, pictures from their their training. Uh, I knew he did strongman. I didn't know a lot about it. Um, he was like a six foot five, 350 pound guy that, you know, you, you see him, you expect him to do strongman. Um, at the time, I wasn't aware there were weight classes or anything like that. Um, but you know, he, he sent out some pictures of their workouts and said, you know, somewhat sarcastically, if you want to try it, just stop by my, my house on Saturdays at noon or whatever. Um, and I was really intrigued. Uh, so I, I showed up, I, you know, I didn't know what to expect. So I showed up, you know, just wearing jeans and I had an excuse to leave, you know, um, just cause mm-hmm. I wasn't sure if it was gonna be a good fit. Um, but the, it was a lot of fun. They, they had me doing sandbag carries and keg carries from the start. Um, it was a really educated group. Uh, most of the guys there were uh, in graduate programs at North Dakota State. Um, and I loved it. I've been doing it ever since. That makes sense. Do, do you have a, did you have an athletic background prior to Strongman? Or was Strongman the first like organized sport you took part in? I, I did. I, I competed in football and wrestling in junior high and through 10th grade. Um, starting in 11th grade, I started college early. Um, so I played... I played rugby for a year there, but besides that, I didn't have much of a athletic background. I got to be honest, I'm I'm a little bit surprised. Usually when we bring in people that are like high level strength athletes, we say like, how did you like, or how'd you get into it? How did you like it? It's always like, well, I touched weight once, fell in love, never looked back. It's, it's really interesting to hear that you kind of were in and out a little bit before it really took hold. Well, a big part of it for me is my competitive aspect. And you're just training alone. I, I like to train. Um, I like getting stronger. I like that progress. But 
it really took the competitive aspect and the team and the team aspect as well to to really get me to to stick around and enjoy it as much as I do now. I mean that that makes sense. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm very much the same way. Uh, I I have tried at various points in my lifting career to just lift for the fun of it, but I I find myself being less and less consistent if I'm not. If I don't have a meet, at least somewhat, at least theoretically on the horizon. Uh, so I, I th- that that definitely resonates with me. Uh, so so James, what are um, what are some of your both biggest lifts and biggest achievements as a strongman athlete to date? So, so for me, like I, I've always focused on winning competitions rather than having big lifts. Um, they do somewhat go hand in hand, but um, I've always been very disciplined with training, which meant not maxing out very often. Um, my biggest accomplishment as a strongman were uh, I won amateur nationals in uh, 2014, uh, where I earned my pro card. Uh, and I won the America's Strongest Man 105K in 2017, uh, which is like the highest level show in weight class strongman. Uh, and then this year I, I came back. I tried to make it as heavyweight. Um, it didn't work out, but this year I came back and got third place at America's Strongest Man 105K. Um, as far as biggest lifts, um, I, I recently hit a 1124-pound 11, uh, 18-inch deadlift at the last competition, um, which I believe is an 18-inch world record. Um, again, strongman isn't really conducive for world records because there's so much variability in equipment and things like that. It's really about um, competing against people. Uh, but it was still a, a really fun lift. Cool, cool to have a big number up there. Um, I've done 400-pound farmer's walks and a lot of 1,000-pound yokes and and things like that. Uh, but the, the deadlift probably sticks out for me as far as uh, biggest like lifting achievements. Yeah, I, I, I saw the video of it. Uh, it was absolutely insane. And uh, I mean, I, I had seen your training videos leading up to it, so I expected to see something over 1,000. But I, I was still pretty shocked to see uh, over 1,100. That was awesome. I've got a quick question about that. So um, I assume 18 inches means basically that the bar position at the start is 18 inches above the ground? Yep. In the United States, 18 inch usually means 18 inches to the bottom of the bar. Um, so the blocks are about nine, inch, nine and a half inches tall. Uh, this particular lift, typically an 18-inch deadlift in strongman, they, they would call a silver dollar deadlift. Um, and so it'd be a, a box, you know, traditionally filled with silver dollars, but, you know, s- some random stuff that would be at the end of the bar. Um, it's a small range of motion. Um, th- this one was a deadlift bar with calibrated plates, um, which was good because they want to set a record. So the calibrated plates kind of made it more, more official. Um, and the deadlift bar made it flex a little bit more like a traditional silver dollar deadlift where the weight's further out. And, and so a, a typical barbell deadlift with normal plates would be like nine inches from the ground or so it'd be nine inches on center eight and a half inches to the bottom okay cool uh, so, man that's a ton of weight so that yeah it's wild generally it, on most people it would start off uh just below the knees um with the flex of the bar um once you get the slack out it's it's just above the knees um and you know once it gets above the knees it's a lot easier of a lift for sure man that that weight is incredible yeah, I, I get a lot of ask. A lot of people ask me, like, "What did it feel like to deadlift 1,124 pounds?" And like, I don't know. I don't remember. You know, you can't. Your brain doesn't work. <laughs> just, just kind of black out. Pretty much. 
So, so James, uh, the vast majority of our audience, the vast majority of the people who will be listening to this are either powerlifters or bodybuilders, or if they don't compete in powerlifting or bodybuilding, that that's at least kind of the style of training that they do. Um, so if, if one of them or multiple of them wanted to perhaps try the sport of strongman after listening to this interview, what, um, what weaknesses would a typical powerlifter, uh, and a typical bodybuilder have just based on, you know, kind of standard powerlifting or bodybuilding training if they then wanted to do a strongman competition? Like where, what what big like strength deficits are they going to have relative to their competitors who do train for strongman? So assuming they, their training is well-rounded, so you're a powerlifter, but you still do overhead press, um, usually the thing that's missing from both would be a, a push press. Uh, there's no equivalent in powerlifting or bodybuilding. Um, bodybuilders specifically often aren't, in training, they might not lock out a lot of reps, so it's it's kind of a hard transition for them to lock things out, uh, just because you know they're they're spend more work on time and retention. Um, but the biggest weakness I see from people of any strength background that's not strongman, whether it's you know bodybuilding, powerlifting, or weightlifting, is kind of a, a thoracic extension movement that we have in strongman. Uh, so when you load an atlas stone, you know you first lap it generally to so get to your lap, which is a, a fairly you know it's, it's definitely a different movement, but it's uses muscles you're using anyway. Uh, the next part, you know, you, you pin the stone on your chest, you know, wrap your arms around it and you stand up with it. Um, and that's a thoracic extension movement that you don't see in any other sports. So it's usually like the, the thing that takes longest to develop uh, to be a good strongman athlete if you're in a different strength background. Um, and you, you see that movement a lot in a lot of events in strongman um, in a, a log clean. Um, it's a similar movement where you're pinning log to, um, to your chest or to your, you know, upper belly, um, and then uh, clean it back. Uh, that's kind of the same thoracic movement that you don't see in other sports. Um, so, like, and, and I think that's kind of a, a weakness that that probably helps in other areas. Um, so it might be worth doing it uh, for things like back health for people who aren't really interested in strongman, but you know, just want to get stronger. How how would someone train that uh, other than just doing stones and log cleans? Um, it, it depends on what equipment you have. Um, I, I would normally just use a sandbag or a keg um, just because with stones, you generally need to use tacky and things like that um, for it not to be like a separate limiting factor outside of that extension. Um, if you don't have any of those things, uh, the, the closest thing at a normal gym might be Zerkers. Um, just that that's as, as close as I can think of. Um, but it, it's definitely really nice to have some kind of like a sandbag thing where you can work that extension. I gotcha. All right. So building on that last question somewhat, uh, if there are people listening to this and they, you know, are maybe thinking about giving strongman a try, I, I think a lot of people are, are hesitant to perhaps, you know, seek out and sign up uh, for a strongman show because they're kind of laboring under the misconception that all strongmen kind of look like the archetypal build for strongmen that you see on, you know, World's Strongest Man, if you've ever tuned into that on ESPN. Uh, so, you know, you, you think 
to be good at the sport, you have to be six foot eight and four hundred pounds. Um, so could you just very quickly like disavow people of that notions? Uh, like what what other divisions are there to compete in? Uh, and you know, just kind of let people know you don't have to be a monster of a of a man to make the sport work. So the vast majority of, of competitors in the sport um, compete at a local level against like regular people. Um, and the, there's two federations in the United States. They have slightly different weight classes, but generally you have at least a lightweight, middleweight, heavyweight, um, ranging from like 175 pounds, usually the lightest class. Uh, there's usually a 200 pound weight class, a, a 231 weight class, um, and then heavyweight weight class on top of that. And for women, it's generally uh, 140 pounds for lightweight, 180 pounds for middleweights, so then heavyweight on top of that. Uh, and there's also usually novice classes um, for people like new, new to the sport or maybe less less dedicated to the sport, uh, where the weights are a lot more manageable for new lifters. I got you. Uh, okay, so you know, next thing, if someone is potentially interested in giving strongman a shot, there's a lot of movements you do, a lot of things that could show up in competition. Um, so generally, you would probably want to find like a crew of strongmen to train with or a strongman gym. So how, how can you go about finding strongman gyms? Um, if there's not a strongman gym in your area, how can you go about, you know, finding other strongmen to train with? Uh, and if you, you know, if there's not a crew nearby and there's not a strongman gym nearby, what are some ways that you could you know, make that work either training solo or training in a commercial gym? Uh, so when I started Strongman, most people didn't have access to implements at all. Uh, you train in the gym using regular movements like everyone else, and you show up to the show, and that might be the first time you touched any of those implements. Uh, it's gotten a lot more competitive since then, so that doesn't work as well as it used to, especially with the availability of, of implements. Um, generally, like, you, you, you try to find a crew or a gym. Uh, there's a website called startingstrongman.com that has a strongman gym finder um, and a starting strongman Facebook group uh, where people post, you know, asking, hey, is there any groups in this in this area? Um, beyond that, if you're, you know, getting your own equipment, um, it, the, you know, starting with a sandbag makes a lot of sense. Uh, like Rogue has their strongman sandbags. Um, Titan Fitness has a lot of really cheap strongman stuff that that really had made a lot more accessible for people. Um, and I mean, if you're if you're the one that's going to take the initiative and kind of get your own equipment and start a crew, that's I mean, that's awesome. We need more of that for sure. Now that website that you mentioned, I think I think it was uh, Starting Strongman. Yep. D does that also have uh, resources to help you find competitions in your area, or is it just? Gyms. It, it does have a, a competition finder, but it's not very complete. Um, if you're looking for a strongman competition in your area, um, there's there's two major United States federations: Strongman Corporation and United States Strongman. Um, go to each of their websites, and they both have upcoming competitions uh, on their site. Um, and so, browse that, find find a competition in your area. Um, both federations are, are great. Um, it's usually the quality of the competition is dependent on the local promoter more than the federation. Um, so based on what events you like, you know, timing, location, things like that, uh, find one that looks fun and sign up. Perfect. And, and just a clarification for the listeners, you, you use the term implements a few times there. Um, if people aren't aware of what that means, it's basically the 
specialized equipment that people associate with strongman competitions. Is that uh, a reasonable definition for that? Yep. Whether it's like a log, an atlas stone, a sandbag, they generally just call them uh, strongman implements. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, as Greg mentioned, a lot of people, their barrier for getting into strongman is they're, they're like, well, I'm not six, eight, 400 pounds. I think a lot of them don't realize that there are weight, you know, weight classes and competitions that account for that. And then the other huge barrier is, while the competition is picking up giant stones, where am I going to find a giant stone? So, uh, you know, definitely it's, it's one of those sports where it sounds like you have to really tap yourself into a community or at least seek things out a little bit, uh, online. Yeah. It's, it's much easier if you find a community, if you find a gym, um, you know, I have a lot of respect for people who started it on their own for sure. Um, but the, the availability has really increased the, the number of competitors in the sport. Um, it's gotten a lot bigger. Uh, than it was when I started, for sure. So, James, uh, you know, l- let's assume now someone has found a crew uh, or they found a strongman gym to train at and they've registered for a competition. Um, the The next question, I think, j- just based on talking to various strongmen, I think I- any answer you give will be somewhat contentious because I know different people have different philosophies about this. Um, but how... How would you personally recommend uh, one go about balancing kind of general strength training versus event training? Because as I understand it, you know, you're you're probably not going to work with strong, strongman implements for 90% of your training. Like there's probably still going to be just some standard barbell work in the mix. Uh, so, so how do you personally think one best goes about balancing like general strength training versus event training? Like, I, I personally don't believe that really general strength is exactly a thing. Um, my, my training revolves around the events I'm competing in. Everything I do is purposeful to get better at those events. Um, there's other people that are just as good at me or better that, that do strongly believe in a, a uh, you know, barbell-centered training with, with the uh, event training as, as a side. Um, but I, I approach the event training if, if I have, whether it's like a log press or a stone over bar or something like that, I would uh, uh, approach those events just like a powerlifter would approach deadlift, squat, and bench. Um, I mean, every competition is, is pretty much like a different strength sport because you have different events. And my goal for the, that prep is get as good as possible at those events. The best way to do that is to do do the events and do accessories that, um, whether they're a portion of the event, portion of that lift, or directly improve that lift, um, that's what I'm really going to concentrate on as I'm getting ready for competition. Um, but there, there's still a lot to be said for, you know, general strength. You know, a deadlift is a deadlift to some extent. Um, squats will help lots of areas in strongman as well. Um, but I, I personally focus on just becoming as good as, at, as possible at these five events uh, and kind of disregard the concept of general strength. You know, just, just signing up for the show, just getting stronger at those events, it improves all of your strength anyway. So do, how how often do you compete? So, like, I, I know that in general, strongmen compete more often than powerlifters, or, or at least it seems like you guys do. Um, but, you know, like, let's say you register for a show and it's nine months out. Like, are, are you mostly just going to be doing event training for that show nine months out for the entire nine months? 
so typically, or like, do, what what would like kind of off season work look like for you, or do you just kind of not have an off season? Um, so it used to be that all the shows I did were in the summer, so I'd have a nice long off season to build up the weaknesses. Um, they're spread out a lot more. The higher level shows are spread out. Uh, you have the Arnold in February and Nationals in October and America's Strongest Man in the fall sometime, things like that. Um, so it, it really depends on like what level show you're doing. Um, most shows don't even announce the events until three or four months out. Um, so it's not like you're training for it all year. Um, I, th- I think if you're training for the same show for more than four months, it, it probably is too much. You know, it's probably um, hurting your long-term progress. Um, but, you know, I, I would say competitors will generally want to compete at least three times per year. Um, some some do a lot more. Some some are willing to just show up at shows without really concentrating on for a long time. Um, I'm at the point now where, you know, it's, I've have a lot of old injuries and things like that. Um, and I'm happy to compete once or twice a year. Um, but it's, I mean, we're, we're all doing it for fun and because we like to compete. So it makes sense to, you know, do it as often as you like. It's funny to see the, the disparity there. We've got, uh, our, our dietitian at stronger by science for our coaching staff. He, uh, he, he competes in strongman and it seems like every other week he's at a new competition. It's crazy how much he's competed the last year. And I do bodybuilding and I, I basically am on like a presidential election cycle. Like every four years I'll think about it. Um, so it's just funny to see how he gets to engage in that sport so frequently and get so much competitive uh, feedback and continue going to these competitions. And I'm like, it'd be cool, but I'd probably die. So I'll see you in four years. Yeah, it is all personal preference. Um, I always approach it as if I sign up for a show, um, I'm always going to dedicate 100% to that show for as long as, you know, as long as the events are out there. Um, but it's there's a lot to say for getting strong at everything and proving it as frequently as you can. All right. So while we're still on the topic of programming training for strongman, um, the vast majority of the people listening to this are primarily going to think of programming training in terms of sets and reps, you know, like five sets of eight squats or whatever. Um, and for, for some exercises or like for some lifts and strongman, that sort of planning, uh, approach would be appropriate, but how, how would you kind of program for and, um, like apply progressive overload and monitor progress for events that maybe aren't as amenable to that? So for example, things like carries or holds, where you're not, you know, strictly doing reps. So in strongman, there's so there's a lot more events. So a lot of times you have to spend a good amount of time just familiarizing yourself with the event, not necessarily like planning a strength cycle, just getting generally good at that event. Uh, especially when you're new, that's really what you're focusing on is just, you know, just getting good at it in general. Um, once you're kind of past that point, uh, again, it's very de- event specific. Uh, for yoke walk is a specific example. Um, a heavy yoke walk is a very different movement than a fast yoke walk. Um, when it's if you're going for a really really heavy yoke, uh, you're generally doing short steps um, and a long hold. Whereas you know lighter yoke, your your strides extending, um, and it's just a very different gait. Um, so 
for yoke specifically, um, I'm training that fast gait lighter than competition weight in hopes that I can, you know, get that same speed, you know, over, over my training cycle, over my three months or whatever I'm working on it, get that same speed I'm doing with the light yoke to the heavier yoke of the show by that time. Um, and so that means like a lot of time sets. So you're, you're timing each set, you're trying to uh, keep it under a certain goal time. And, you know, if, if my goal is eight, eight second yoke, every week I want a, maybe a, a heavier eight second yoke um, as I'm approaching, you know, that, that competition weight. Where there's, you know, other events, you, you might train it very differently. Um, sometimes uh, for a lot of more complicated medleys, you, you you split up the uh, the different aspects of the medley. Um, you train them all separately, and then when you get like three weeks out, you finally bring it together, um, and then get the conditioning aspect of it in, and then like the transition aspect of it in. Um, so there's it, it's very event specific. There's no general rules. Um, you, you can't you you might still like do some kind of a, a wave sort of training on on a lot of the mobile events where you're going heavy every week, and then you drop it back down. Uh, just to continue that progress, um, but you know a lot of events you, you certainly can't approach it exactly like you would um, a squat or deadlift. You you mentioned medleys. Um, what does what a typical medley look like? Like like what what would that look like in competition? Um, so a lot of I mean, different shows have very different medleys. Um, a lot of times it might be like a carry and load, where you might have three different objects that you like pick up, uh, carry for fifty feet or sixty feet, and load it over a bar. Um, sometimes you might carry and drop into a sled and drag that sled. Um, sometimes it could be like a wheelbarrow where you're loading something into the wheelbarrow, then carrying the wheelbarrow, uh, then loading more stuff in the wheelbarrow. Um, it's really just up to the creativity of the promoter as far as what could be in the medley, um, which keeps it interesting. You know, keeps you know every every training cycle for a medley might be a little bit different because every medley is different, um, and you you might have different um, opportunities to get better at it. So James, as uh, as someone who you know mostly competes in strongman, but who has at least dabbled in powerlifting, uh, you, you're clearly aware that the, uh, the the technique requirements and specifications, and just the way that uh, the two sports approach technique, uh, are very very different. Insofar as you know, powerlifting, basically everything you can and can't do is strictly defined. Whereas in strongman, it seems like, you know, as long as you move the weight from point A to point B, uh, it's fine. So j just as someone who has competed in both of those sports, um, which approach to technique do you, uh, do you just personally generally enjoy more? Um, and what uh, what pros and cons do you see to, you know, kind of like the the laissez-faire approach to, uh, like t technical specifications in competition for the lifts being performed? So I, I appreciate the uh, the powerlifting aspect of it, where you keep everything very defined. Um, no one's going to come up with any new tricks to squat more or anything like that. Um, it's a lot more pure as far as you know getting stronger. It, it's a lot easier to study in science um, because it, it's very well defined. There's no there's no new secrets. No no new techniques are going to come out. Um, Strongman has so many events that you still see new ways to do things uh, that hadn't been done before. Um, a couple of years ago, you know, uh, keg pressing is a pretty common event in strongman, and uh, 
typically you would you would clean the keg like you would a log or lifting a stone and then press it from there. Um, recently, someone discovered uh, if you clean the log vertically, so it's you know vertical on your on your lap, and then uh, pop your hips to push the the lower end up, it's a more effective lift for for a lot of people. So like you know I've been doing strongman for like ten years at this point. I never even thought of that. Um, so it's it's pretty cool that uh, there's still new ways to find to to do these lifts that haven't been done before. Um, you know, I personally appreciate um, the strongman aspect of you're you're going to find the optimal way to lift it for you without any restrictions as far as movements go. Um, as an example, on deadlifting, um, strongman allows hitching and ramping where powerlifting does not. Um, I, I don't believe a deadlift is a natural movement um, because you have to keep your knees behind the bar. You know, so you're you're not in your optimal lifting position because your knees have to stay back. Um, in strongman, for for me, if I'm much stronger if my knees come forward when, when the bar gets past my legs. So I'm going to ramp every rep, even if I don't have to, just because it's, it's easier. It's, it's uh, more efficient. My body type uh, can, can lift more that way. So I'm going to make it easier because I can. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the, the ability to lift it in the way that's best for you rather than having like a tight set of rules. That's a really fascinating perspective. I've never thought of it that way, but the idea that you're in a sport where you can still make like meaningful qualitative changes to the way events are performed, that would be a really exciting thing. Yeah, it's it's um the the what's it called? The the Fogsbury flop in in high jump. Like there's there's still opportunities in strongman to to do things a different way that that hasn't been done before, and it's it's cool to see. It's like, uh, Greg, you were telling me a story a while back about that guy who showed up to the race, uh, like a super long distance race. Oh, yeah. Uh, Cliff Young, I think. Yeah, yeah. He showed up and was just like, yeah, I run a little bit differently than everybody and just like absolutely killed everyone, right? <laughs> well, so it, for, for him, it was two things. So one, like it, it, everyone thought his running technique was ridiculous because it was... Uh, it was more of like a shuffle than a running stride. Uh, so like head down and and legs mostly stiff, not bending your knees a bunch. Um, but the, the biggest thing that gave him an advantage is that he could run for five days straight without sleeping. Uh, whereas <laughs> all of his competition, that had never occurred to them that like, oh, I can run 600 miles and never sleep. Um but yeah, so the the thing with his running technique is it turns out that it was actually quite biomechanically efficient. And for the race being run, um, which I think was Sydney to Melbourne, uh, I don't know Australian geography that well. It was two cities that were like approximately six, seven hundred miles apart. Uh, anyway, just racing between those two cities. Uh, and it turns out uh, if you run for six, seven hundred miles straight, you generate a ton of eccentric stress. Um, and so uh, d doing kind of like a stiffer leg shuffle to where you're not accumulating as much eccentric stress on your quads turns out to not be a, a bad way to run 700 miles. But, you know, when the race started, everyone was like, who is this guy and why does his technique suck so hard? And then after he completely demolished everyone, they studied his running technique and they're like, oh, no, actually pretty good. 
So James, we've talked a lot about training, but obviously there's, there's, you know, any kind of strength sport, there's going to be some influence of nutrition in the way you're eating. Um, within the sport of strongman, is there currently a big focus on nutrition among some of the higher level competitors? I would say yes. Um, I think, you know, culturally early on, it was a lot of, you know, just eat lots and, you know, just lots of calories, lots of everything. Um, I think now more and more are getting into, you know, tighter diets. Um, the vertical diet's gotten popular among a lot of top athletes. Um, it's, it was a aspect that was kind of not addressed well enough for a lot of competitors for a long time. And I think now they're, they're cleaning up their diets and I think the performances are going up because of it. So for me personally, um, I, I kind of, for a lot of strongmen, I kind of look more at um, like nutrition that, that maybe football players would use over a powerlifter just because of the athletic part of it uh, with a big focus on intra-workout carbs um, that, you know, seems to make a big difference for me at least. Yeah. And so you mentioned the vertical diet by name. Is, is that kind of the, the singular predominant dietary strategy that's kind of trending currently or are there are there like competing uh dietary uh paradigms currently at the highest level um the vertical diet is real popular uh, a nutritionist named nathan payton has done the diets for he's doing the diet for martins and he's doing brian shaw again um he's been real popular he does a lot of um his, a lot of his his work is around insulin um insulin sensitivity and things like that um I think most people don't follow like a named diet. They, they just use good general principles. Um, but there's, there's definitely a bigger focus on diet than there used to be. So James, this, uh, th this next question, I think, um, w will probably be the most, I don't know, possibly controversial in the episode. It shouldn't be, but people are ridiculous. Uh, and it is about drugs in strongman. So, as I understand it, um, at this point, like virtually, virtually no or or literally no strongman shows are drug tested. Um, but obviously, there are still a lot of drug free people who compete in strongman. You know, probably just not world strongest man in that level. Um, so, like, j just in general, if someone's listening to this, like. Let's say they're a drug-free powerlifter and they want to give strongman a shot. Um, how how out of place uh, are they going to feel as a drug-free athlete? Um, and and to what degree can they still be competitive in the sport? Uh, you know, assuming they have somewhat decent strength genetics, uh, if they don't decide to take the plunge. So a lot of people think everyone's using and a lot of people think not many people are using, and I'm sure they're both pretty wrong. Um, I would say I, I believe in strongman drugs help less than it would in powerlifting because there's more aspects that aren't just static strength. Um, at a local show, um, I would say the use of drugs barely makes any impact. Uh, the drug-free lifters win just as much as the, the ones that are using drugs just because the local level, you know, the skill and experience and athleticism plays a, a much bigger part um, at like the world's strongest man level and Arnold level. Um, all those guys are using um, the, the last uh, real high level top heavyweight that I know of would have been probably Phil Fister uh, when he won in, I think 2006. Um, but I mean, it's, it's a not, not untested sport. 
drugs are always going to help the heavyweights the most because they don't have a weight cap. Um, so yeah, you see a lot in in the the high the highest level heavyweights. Um, there are a lot of heavyweight strongmen that are very good and, and drug free. Um, a lot of uh, the top ten guys from the Arnold Amateur uh, strongman heavyweight strongman show uh, were, were drug free. Um, it's and it helps the lower weight classes. It helps less, so you're going to see a lot more drug free athletes than 175s and 200s, and you win the heavyweights as well. Um, it, it it's tough to. I mean, most people aren't that public about it, um, but there's there's kind of been a shift, I believe, over the last few years, uh, where people are being more more public about it, and all the, like the Instagram meme pages make drug memes all the time. So I. I <laughs> I do believe people are starting to think that everyone's using more than ever. Um, and people who don't use are starting to feel more out of place. Um, so I think that's kind of becoming a problem. Um, people underestimate how good you can get without drugs. And then it, it honestly, I, I believe when you start believing everyone's using, everyone that's beating you is using, that creates a big uh, a nocebo effect. Um, where you know if, if you think you're losing because you're not taking drugs, you're going to start losing. Be, you know, because you think that. Um, it, so it, it's definitely a tough position. It's, it's, and it's tough with strongman because drug testing doesn't fit in the strongman model very well. Um, in, in powerlifting, performances are based on wilks. So you don't need a lot of people in your class to have a competition. Um, in strongman, it's, it's, you're not competing against the weights as much as you're competing against people. All your score is based on how you do compared to the other people in your class. So you need a decent sized class to have real competition. Um, if you drug test at a local level, you're, you might be eliminating, eliminating like a, a fairly large percentage of the potential competitors, uh, which might mean a smaller show, um, which you know just makes it harder to have a show. Um, so, you know, I don't think drug testing makes sense at a local level. Between that and the fact, I don't believe it helps that much. Um, I, I would like to see um, higher level opportuni opportunities for drug-free athletes um, just so that, you know, they, they don't feel like they they can't go very far if they don't start using uh, just because, I mean, a lot of people are starting to feel disenfranchised um, by the amount of, of people publicly talking about their drug use and the, the idea that everyone's using. So I, I know um, one of the things that you've told me before is that you're kind of kicking around the idea of, maybe trying to have a drug tested nationals within, you know, the next few years or something. Uh, how, how is that plan coming along and how, if, if it worked out, um, how do you think that would maybe change the face of strongman, at least in America, uh, and, you know, possibly encourage more people to, to give the sport a shot? So, um, I guess some background, um, strongman corporation is, is, you know, of course, one of the, the two federations, um, Arnold Schwarzenegger is in the process of buying a stake in Strongman Corporation. Um, so he's going to be very influential as far as the direction of the organization goes. Um, and as he's, he's been very uh, health focused recently. Um, I know he's, he's been very concerned about the health of some of the top level athletes. So I think he would be open to having a separate drug test nationals. Um, but, you know, again, only time will tell that. Um, I, I think... You know, the, I can't imagine it changing the the top level, the world's strongest man things, because people want to see the biggest and the strongest. Um, but on the, the amateur level, the local level, um, 
you're, you're not selling tickets. Your, your customer is the athletes themselves. And it, having this another opportunity for athletes that are drug-free to compete at a high level against other drug-free athletes, I think would be great for the consumers. Um, so like, hope, hopefully we can make it happen at some point. Um, I think it would keep a lot more people in the sport. Uh, it would probably bring some new sponsors on board that are kind of afraid to sponsor these competitions because of the association with drugs. Um, and I mean, I, I would love to see that happen. Yeah, that, that would be really, really cool. Um, I, I think like, so to, talking to some of my buddies who are powerlifters, uh, one, <laughs> one, I guess like dirty little secret in powerlifting is, uh, a lot of powerlifters think, or I would say recognize that strongman is objectively a cooler sport. Um, but I, I think a lot of, uh, especially like USAPL guys and, uh, drug-free powerlifters are, are a little bit hesitant to give strongman a shot because there is, you know, there is that perception. Well, one, the fact that none of it is drug tested and then kind of building on that, the perception that, oh, if you're competing in an untested sport, like you must be using as well. So I, I think like having at least some avenue of uh of drug tested competition at least somewhere in the hierarchy of the sport um would help lessen that perception to some degree and and probably get a lot more people uh to sign up and do their first show so i i think that would be really really cool yeah i actually i actually had a a weightlifter who was transitioning to strongman training with us for strongman um, and he, he told me, he took me aside and said, you know what? I want to dedicate myself hundred percent to strongman. I'm ready to go. Uh, what do I need to take? And like, it was really disappointing because he's brand new. He had two years of huge gains, uh, without drugs at least. Um, and like he, the expectation was you need to start to do well. And that's just not the case. Um, and just, I mean, having, having drugs as nationals, I think that would help alleviate that, that mindset. No, yeah, for for sure, and I mean, like, I I think like p- people compete, people compete in strength sports for different reasons, um, and I I think like strongman is probably different from powerlifting in that regard because like like you mentioned earlier in this interview, um, you know, powerlifting the the weights weigh what they weigh. Uh, there are Wilk scores, whatever. Like you, you can show up to compete against your competitors, but the vast majority of people are just showing up to compete against their prior PRs because ultimately whether you win or lose like a local powerlifting meet or not just kind of depends who shows up. Uh, <laughs> if like just kind of the local crop shows up, maybe you win. Or if like a, a national or world-class level lifter you know, needs to hit a qualifying total for nationals and shows up, uh, you know, you go from winning to being a distant, distant second, just solely based on who showed up for the show. Whereas in uh, Strongman, it it is much more like head-to-head competition and, you know, competing against your class rather than competing against like your old PRs. So I, I think that like, I think that people who are kind of more competitively minded would uh, would probably, you know, very much enjoy being able to compete in a manner where they know that 
they know that their competitors aren't able to do something that they personally don't feel comfortable with uh, for whatever reason. Because, I mean, you know, it's it's one thing to know that you're going into some sort of competition with a handicap and still winning. Like, that feels awesome. But, you know, if you realistically wind up losing more than you win and you know that, like, you know, there's a decent chance that I would do better if I broke some laws. <laughs> um, you know, that, that's just not a great position for people to be in. Yeah, it definitely isn't. So on, on the the topic of, um, you know, just competing in general, uh, one, one key difference between uh, powerlifting and strongman is in powerlifting, you know, there's little holes in the weights. You can go up and down. You can make sure that the weights are light enough that you can get your opener in. Uh, that is not always the case in strongman. Uh, if you're not strong enough, you can zero events and, you know, just completely wash out of the competition. So how, so if someone is, you know, kind of decently strong already, but not exceptionally strong, um, what are some ways that they can know that kind of, it will be worthwhile for them to show up, uh, to a strongman show and they're not just going to like zero everything and have a bad time. So one of the things a lot of local promoters are doing to help alleviate that is to have what we call Trump weights, uh, where you, you have a main weight. So it might be like, let's say it's a 280 pound log press for reps. Uh, if you zero the 280, you might be able to go down to a 240 and, you know, still get some points. You know, you'd lose to everyone that gets any reps to 280, but it would just make it a lot more accessible. Um, they, they did something similar at the Arnold with like the, 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 the heavy log. Um, you know, a couple of people get the heavy log and everyone else go to, down the lighter log. Um, that makes it a lot more accessible. Um, but as, as far as like, if, you know, I, I would say generally there's a lot more people who feel that they're not ready to compete in the strongman show, but are ready than people who feel they're ready, but aren't ready. You know, I, I think it's okay to zero an event or two. Um, if anything that, that it's nice to get a starting point, you know, you might get, you know, last place. That's a starting point. You can do a little bit better every single competition. Um, and you have that experience, you know, you know what you need to work on. Um, I mean, it, it's okay to zero something. Um, it, you know, it's, it's, again, it's all about having fun. It's, you don't have to win every show. I gotcha. Um, so j- just shifting gears slightly, uh, you mentioned that for yourself, you have, a, a somewhat extensive injury history <laughs> And when when you look into the research on injury rates and in strength sports, um, it it doesn't seem like the injury rate for strongman is like catastrophically high or anything like that. Like it, it's certainly still considerably lower than say American football. Um, but but the research that does exist seems to suggest that the injury rate for strongman might be somewhere in the neighborhood of about twice as high as it is for powerlifting and weightlifting. So first off, uh, does that match kind of your experience, um, you know, competing in strongman and then also running just a general strength sports gym? Uh, Two, what sorts of injuries are the most common in strongman? And then three, what, uh, you know, what prehab work, what modifications, what sort of precautions can people take if they want to compete in strongman? to, you know, not completely get rid of any injury risk, but 
at least uh, at least mitigate those risks to some degree. I, I think it does make sense that, that there's a lot more injuries in strongman than in powerlifting. Um, simply, there's there's a few reasons. Uh, there's a lot more variety of events, and some events are inherently more dangerous. Uh, tons of of injuries on tire flip, for example. Um, then strongman has the adds the additional risk of um, you know, with all the odd objects and things like that. Um, I've seen a few people, you know, drop an atlas stone on themselves. You know, that's not going to happen in powerlifting. So you get a whole other avenue to get potential injuries in, in strongman. Um, and powerlifting has a lot of pretty well-defined training programs that you know you kind of know it's going to happen. Um, where in strongman, that that doesn't exist. And if you program wrong, you're you might be overusing something or underusing something, and it's you know just not a, a program that you can recover from well, and that increases the injury risk as well. Um, so it, it definitely makes sense. There's more injuries in strongman. Um, the only mitigating thing is I think there might be s- some fewer kind of repetitive stress sort of injuries because there are a lot more stuff we work on, uh, a lot more variety, um, and that that kind of helps with. There there seems to be some pretty good longevity. Uh, of a lot of high-level strongmen. Um, Zadrina Savickas was top two in the world for 15 years, um, which, I mean, you might see some of that in powerlifting, but it seems like you see more of the really long longevity in strongman than you do in, in similar strength sports. Um, so it, it, it's, it, it certainly makes sense there's more injuries. Um, that's part of the sport. Um, as, as far as prehab, rehab goes, um, the bicep tears are probably the most common injury in strongman. Um, and that's, you know, you do a lot of eccentric work uh, to build that tendon up. But that only goes so far. Um, people who are very religious about their prehab still will tear biceps occasionally. Um, so you just, you mitigate the risk as best you can, listen to your body. Most of my injuries, like after they happened, I look back and like, hey, I had, I had some clues that I ignored, you know? Um, mm-hmm. so that, I mean, if you're paying attention to that, um, it, it can certainly help. Um, but you know, it, injuries happen. And, and to me, it's, it's just part of, you know, doing the sport. It's not a, it's not that big of a deal. It just means I can't move this arm for this many months and then I'm, then I'm back to normal, you know? <laughs> oh man. I, I, I love how you phrase that because I think that's how I would approach it as well, but kind of to the average person. Oh, just can't move this arm for a few months would uh, seem like a big deal. But I mean, yes, sometimes that's uh, that's just the price of admission for a sport. Yeah, and I mean, bicep surgery has gotten really good lately. Um, you know, I tore mm-hmm. my bicep a couple years ago, and you know they they do a nerve block, so there's no pain when you know after the surgery until that night, and there's a well defined recovery period um, after it's all healed up. It's stronger than ever. Um, as far as injuries I've had. Bicep tear was probably one of my, like affected my strength career less than a lot of like tendonitis issues. It affected me less than my patellar and Gulliver's elbow and and a lot of other things. So um, you just kind of have to put it in perspective. I must say, I I feel like a like a complete tendon rupture would be a pretty uh, distressing thing to go through. But uh, in terms of the aftermath, like man, I'll take anything that's not a back injury like because you know like like you said with with a limb injury it's like okay well i'm gonna hobble around i'll be on crutches i won't use that arm whatever that's fine but like there's nothing worse than when you're like 
I hope I don't sneeze in the next three weeks because I am not physically prepared to sneeze. And if I do, it's going to be horrible. Yeah. My, my specific bicep injury, like it, it worked out really well because it happened at America's Strongest Man 2017. Um, it was on the fourth event. It was an arm over arm, like a, a rope pull. It happened on the last pull. I still got second on that event. Uh, the fifth event was a deadlift. Um, and it, we can use straps in Strongman. So I, could, I was in first going into the last event. Um, I, I was still able to deadlift with my completely detached bicep. Uh, I got second in that event, and it tied me for first overall. Um, so it's a tiebreaker. They, they, you know, it's, Strongman is a show first above everything else. They wanted a, a good tiebreaker show for the audience. Um, and that meant, well, it couldn't be anything that I, I couldn't do, you know? So they did a, a one-handed farmer's hold. Um, and I had, you know, won the one-handed farmer's hold with my, you know, one attached bicep. And it was a, it was a really cool mo- moment. And I was ready to take a break anyway. Like I was, I was ready to, to lay off, you know, I've been training and competing so hard that I was ready to take some time off anyway. So the timing was great. The surgery was easy. Um, it, I mean, I, I couldn't have asked for a better bicep tear. I'm going to be honest, man. The idea of deadlifting with a detached bicep really grosses me out. <laughs> that seems so gross to me, but, uh, but that, that's a really cool story, man. Yeah. Well, it couldn't get any more detached. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's, the, I, and that's I, how I, it works. I, it was a 675 axle deadlift and I think I got four reps. Um, I had more in me, but I couldn't hold on to the bar anymore. Like my, my straps are slipping. So, um, but I mean, it's, it's such Man. a good story. I, I would be uh, most concerned that I dislocate a shoulder at that point. Um, Cause your, your biceps are one of the primary restraints uh, against dislocating a shoulder. If there's like downward traction like that. Um, good thing that didn't happen. Yeah, well, it's, it's not like <laughs> I can use that arm for a while anyway, though, you know? That's a perfect time to slow No, I mean, fair enough. That that's a great point. Uh, if there was a time to dislocate a shoulder, you know, when you're already going to have bicep surgery, couldn't pick a better time for a dislocation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I am getting towards the end of the questions I had prepared, um, but just for 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 the people listening at home, uh, I, I think. A lot of the top super heavyweight male strongmen in the world are pretty well known at this point. So you have Thor, you have Brian Shaw, you have Eddie Hall. Those are kind of household names at this point, uh, kind of within the general strength training community, especially the strength sports community. But uh, who, who else kind of should be on our radar? And kind of specifically here, you know, most people listening to this may really enjoy watching, you know, giants like Thor and Brian Shaw lift super heavy stuff. You know, you're 5'10", 200 pounds, and it's it's impressive, but not entirely relatable. So what what are some, you know, either super heavyweights on the come up, but, but then just also like awesome strongmen in strongmen and strong women in other weight classes that people should know about and maybe be able to look to for inspiration from people who possibly look more like them? Um, for the heavyweights, the, the top contender right now is uh, uh, Mateus Kilzakowski, I think. Uh, he recently won some shows. Um, he's, he's probably going to beat Martins at, at World Strongest Band this year. Um, I, I think Thor and Shaw are kind of on the way down. Um, 
a big contender is uh, Alexei Novikov. Um, he's he competed. He competes a lot. He competed like ten times in two months recently. Um, but if he can take some time off and dedicate himself, he's really athletic. Um, doesn't have the the frame as the big guys, but uh, he's going to be a contender. Um, I think this coming up year at, at World Strongest Man. Um, as far as other classes, um, there's uh, coming up this weekend is the official strongman games. It's like the world's strongest man for world's strongest woman for the weight classes and world's strongest man for for the weight classes. Um, it'll have been uh, a week or two ago when this airs, um, but there's a lot of exciting classes there. Um, the lightweight women has uh, uh, Rhiannon Lovelace. Uh, she she won the world's strongest man uh, world's strongest woman under 140 last year. Um, she's got a near 600 pound deadlift. Um, just amazingly statically strong. Uh, there's an up-and-comer named Delia Falcone um, that's American that's that's had a very impressive year that that could you know battle for that title. Um, there's uh, a lot of middleweight women that are uh, the, the established middleweight women um, are uh, Leifa Ingalls and uh, Kim Dirks. They've been the top two for a couple of years. Uh, there's a new contender. Uh, Danny Vajie, who just uh, did a 285 log press. Um, she could become like the new top 180 uh, in the women's class pretty soon. Wait, what? Uh, yeah, Danny. Uh, a 180-pound woman with a 285 log press? Yes. Holy shit. Holy shit. That, that's ridiculous. <laughs> You 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 can keep going. I'm just gonna like <laughs> chuckle to myself for a second. I, I hope I have the right the weight right. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that was it. Um, yeah, so she she's uh, may may now be the top 180 women. We'll, we'll need to find a competition where all three of them compete again. Um, she she I, I'm, I think she's still under 180. Um, she might she might weigh a little bit more now, but uh, she's she's been. I just looked it up. Her current body weight is 202, uh, but she's been competing under 180 for the most part. Um, there's a lot of great uh, heavyweight women um, coming up. It's you know, for years it was Kristen Rhodes and Donna Moore were like the top two by far, um, and now like Andrea Thompson's up there, and and uh, Jessica Fithin and Haley Randall and a few others are are knocking on that door as far as you know, top women in the heavyweights. So I mean, it, it's exciting. There's kind of uh, the the numbers are are going up faster than ever in my opinion, um, especially in the women's classes. Cool. And for the uh, for the lighter men's classes, um, in the middleweights, uh, for Americans, uh, just uh, last week in American Strongest Man, there's a, a newer competitor named Jesse Nelson. Um, he's he's strict log press three three ninety in training. He went for a world record and just missed it at American Strongest Man log press. Um, he's got a ton of potential. He he won the the log press American Strongest Man and he uh, he won the yoke. Um, but what's noteworthy, like he's fairly new, so he still has a lot of, of potential there. His technique doesn't look very good. He's just pure strength. Uh, so that means there's, to me, there's a lot of uh, opportunity for him to get better. Um, so I could see him being the top 105K very soon. Um, another top 105K to watch, uh, Chad Kurian. He was traditionally a heavyweight. He, he you know, made it to the main stage of the Arnold Amateur as a heavyweight in the past years. Um, last year was his first year competing at 231. Um, he had a, a rotator cuff tear, I think, or some shoulder injury that kind of held him back. Um, but healthy, he might be like one of the new top 105Ks. 
so like right now the top Americans are, are uh, Terry Rady, Anthony Furman and I, um, and we're, you know, Anthony and I are pretty injured. Um, Terry might be, um, I don't know what his plans are, but I know he had some, some heart issues, so he might be on the way down. So it's exciting to watch some of the new guys, you know, kind of take the, the play, take our place and, you know, become the new top Americans in the 105k. Sounds good. Uh, so, so that is, uh, the end of my pre-prepared questions. Uh, obviously, you know way more about the sport of strongman than I do. So is, uh, is there anything else you'd like to share about the sport in general? Uh, advice or information for people who are interested in giving strongman a shot? Or just basically anything that I know too little to think to ask you about? Uh, just, you know, just here in closing... Just to make sure that, uh, you know, anything that someone could possibly want to get out of this interview, if they want to give Strongman a shot, uh, they do get out of it. And keep in mind, this is basically the uh, the final opportunity to really put a nice highlight reel together for your audition. <laughs> so, um, you know, use this opportunity to its maximum potential. Um, so I, I think so a lot of Strongman compete in powerlifting also. Um not a lot of powerlifters compete in strongman also. And it, it does make sense. There's a lot more stuff to learn. Um, but I, I think people need to, uh, should know that you don't have to, you know, be great at it to compete. Um, it's a fun sport. It might be a side thing. Um, it could help build some strengths, build up some weaknesses you didn't know you had. Um, so I would encourage people that, that do powerlifting, uh, you know, spend a couple months, try out some strongman and, you know, just, just give it a shot. Um, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's a great culture. Um, I mean, the culture is pretty similar to powerlifting. It's really supportive. Um, and, you know, it's it's just a, a nice, uh, a different um, strength sport that, that's definitely worth giving a shot. All right. Well, that uh, that does it for us. Um, where, where can people find you if they want to follow you and your stuff? And uh, is there anything you would like to shill for here in closing? Anything I'd like to show for? Yeah, you know, stuff to promote. Uh, Engage in capitalism, so to speak. Yeah. Well, so so the gym's pretty busy already. So I'm not. I don't. I don't like advertise to get more gym members. But if you if you're in Raleigh and, and you want to go to a real uh, a solid strength gym, uh, check out Spider Strength Gym. Um, I can reach on Instagram. I'm JDef Pro Strongman on Instagram. Um, and yeah, re- reach out, follow me, see what Strongman's about. Sweet. All right. Well, that uh, that does it for us. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to come on, James. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, Visit StrongerByScience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.